flowers that are here that were uh, from yesterday's uh, service for Julia. Um, they're here today. They were used yesterday. If you would like to take a flower or two home with you today, that would be excellent. You can come to the front and pick a couple flowers out and take them. There's some paper towels up here that you can wrap the stems in. They'll be wet. You can wrap the stems around them and take them home and put them in a vase and enjoy them at your house. Uh, that would make Bob and I'm sure Julia very happy. So take a couple uh, flowers with you when you leave. That would be excellent. Um, yesterday after the service, uh, one of Bob's sisters said to me, you have a very nice congregation. And I said, I agree with you. I do. It's there, a wonderful group of people. Very thankful for all those who helped uh, serve yesterday. It was a large meal that we served, and I'm grateful to you for those who baked and served and uh, everything that was involved in that. And uh, that uh, another one of Bob's sisters said to me, you have a great song leader. So uh, Greg led yesterday. So uh, just an advertisement again, if you want to go be led by Greg in Francis's room on uh, two weeks from today, uh, first 10 people are the winners. So go talk to Greg uh, about that. What a wonderful opportunity to go encourage uh, Francis. One of my favorite places to spend a summer afternoon when I was in grade school was at 14 Olin Avenue. Now, I grew up in Perry on Fruit Street, and if you go down Fruit Street till it tees into Hope Street, there's a cemetery there, you turn right on Hope Street and then left on Main Street, you can turn right quickly onto Olin Avenue. If you go up the hill just a little bit, on the right side of the street is 14 Olin Avenue. And it is the home, still today, of Bill and Carol Lab. But most importantly for my childhood, it was the home of their son, Aaron. Uh, Aaron was, is a couple of years older than I am. He actually currently is a pastor serving in Florida. But Aaron and I spent a lot of time together in the summer, in the afternoon, at Aaron's house. Along the backside of the Lapse property is a line of pine trees, and we used to climb them by the hour, up and down, up and down. Aaron and his uh, siblings figured out a path that you could take climbing the trees, starting on one end and getting to the other without touching the ground. That was a lot of fun. They had a fort in the, their pine trees. Um, Aaron, uh, the Lapse had a pool in their backyard, so you know what we played for hours. Marco Polo. Marco Polo. Now, um, I'm probably going to pay for telling you this, but so, um, you know, if you get out of the water during Marco Polo, you can say fish out of water and then that person is it. Well, um, when I would get out of water, my friends would cheat and they would say Marco Jolo instead of Marco Polo and they would know that I was out of the water. Terrible. Um, Aaron's house was on the way to the high school, which on our side of the town was the best sledding hill uh, during the winter, so I would walk by, pick up Aaron, and we'd go sledding in the winter time. I was welcomed at the Laps house, always welcomed at the Laps house. After climbing the trees, I could use the special pine uh, sap soap to wash my hands. There was uh, often a bag of apples on the side porch, and we could eat them. The Laps house was a great place to be, uh, but it wasn't quite home. It was, it was close, but it wasn't the same as home. For example, their house, the Laps house, didn't smell the same as our house did. It didn't smell bad. That's not what I'm saying at all. But the Laps used a different uh, type of laundry soap, and they uh, maybe cooked different foods, and their house didn't smell like home. I didn't have access to the whole house. There were places that I wasn't allowed to go. It was not my house. 
I didn't have a key to the lap's house. I always had to knock if I wanted to go in. I didn't have free access to the refrigerator. If I wanted a glass of water, I had to ask. I always got it, but I had to ask. Aaron didn't have to ask. He could just go and get water anytime he wanted. I always had to use my best manners. You should use your manners at home, but you know there's different manners when you're at somebody's house. It was a good place, but it wasn't quite home. You know what that's like, right? Think about your shoes. When you go to somebody's house for the first time, what do you do with your shoes? Is this the type of family that they wear their shoes in the house, so you just wear your shoes on in? Or do you take your shoes off? And if you take your shoes off, where are you supposed to put your shoes? You don't know that until you walk in the door and someone instructs you. Every good hostess I know says, make yourself at home. They always say that. Make yourself at home, but you can't really, because it's not quite home. Now, if you can understand that feeling between being somewhere familiar and happy and being at home, then I think you're ready to read a paragraph from the first letter that the Apostle John wrote in the New Testament. And the paragraph that I have in mind is in chapter 5 of this little book. So if you have a Bible, I would love for you to turn there with me to 1 John chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, you can take one in the pews. If you don't have a Bible at all, please take that Bible with you as you go as our gift to you. We'd love for you to have uh, a Bible, so uh, take one. Now, if you have a Bible, don't take ours. You think it looks better than the one you own? If you're looking for a better Bible, that's what Lost and Found is for. Go there to find a better Bible. But, but um, if you don't have one at all, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Okay, don't steal a Bible from Lost and Found. But uh, if you don't have a Bible at all, take one of the ones from our pews. We'd love to have you uh, have a Bible. Anyway, this paragraph that I'm going to read in chapter 5, John is bringing his argument to a close, and the title that I've given this sermon is Feeling at Home in God's Family. And the subject of John's paragraph is assurance, feeling like you really belong in God's family. We're going to read this paragraph, and then I want to show you from the text two uh, truths. First, we're going to talk about what assurance is, And then we're going to talk about one way that assurance manifests itself. Now, ironically, as we read this verse in the Bible, this chapter in the Bible, paragraph rather, um, this passage about assurance has a verse in it that has provoked a lot of doubt. You'll see that when we get there. This is a passage that's supposed to be about assurance. And more than any other passage, perhaps in Scripture, it causes people to doubt whether or not they're truly followers of Jesus. So... We'll deal with that when we get to it. So let's read 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have What we asked of him. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray, and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is a sin that does not lead to death. So let's start by talking about what assurance is, shall we? That's uh, where John starts in verse 13. Verse 13 here functions as as the purpose statement of a book. 
of the book. He says, I have written these things. And the phrase, these things, refers not just to chapter 5, but to the whole book. This is why John wrote this book, so that you would know that you have eternal life. Remember the trouble that John's readers were experiencing, the, 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 these first readers? Um, a group had left the church claiming that in distinction from the teaching of the apostles, they had found true enlightenment. They had found the true way to be a disciple of Jesus, and, and their way of following Jesus had very little to do with his cross and very little to do with his commandments. They were interested in Jesus as a model of enlightenment. They, they were not interested in him as God the Son uh, come in the flesh. They were the enlightened ones, and everyone else who was left in the church, ah, uh, they shouldn't be sure, so these people said, they shouldn't be sure that they were really followers of Jesus. So John wrote this letter to shore up their confidence, to help them. I wrote these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now when John uses the phrase eternal life, he is not thinking in terms of longevity. That's chiefly in terms of longevity, like the quantity of life, the length of it. John is thinking about the quality of life. What sort of life is it? It's an eternal sort of life. It lasts a long time because of the quality of life that it is. It's life that is, only comes in connection with God. It's a sort of invincible, unchallengeable, full, free life. Jesus used in John 10 the description abundant. It's abundant life. Uh, this illustration it falls short. But think with me for a minute about the differences in the actual lives people lead and the sort of life that they portray for themselves on social media. Right? So numerous studies have shown that uh, the longer you spend looking at social media, Facebook, Instagram, uh, it actually aggravates depression. And the reason for that is because you see on social media people leading all sorts of these awesome lives. Uh, they, they post their best days. They only put good hair days on Facebook. I haven't had one in 10 years, but they only put good hair days on Facebook. Uh, only the cutest things their kids say. Uh, only their happiest moments. No one posts pictures of them plunging a toilet in the middle of the night on Facebook. Right? Uh, no, one, no one posts pictures of them eating cereal for dinner because they're too tired to actually cook and they're eating it with a spatula because every utensil they have is dirty. All right? No one posts pictures of that. But we've all been there. We've all been there. No one posts those pictures. There is your actual life and there is your Instagram life. There is life and then there's eternal life. Life that, that comes in connection with God. And the apostle wants everyone who believes in the name of the Son of God to know that you have eternal life. To have confidence that you really belong in God's family. That you have the right of access. That, you, that the door is always open to you. You know where to put your shoes in God's family. That, that in God's house, you got the key because it's home. Now, we should compare this purpose statement with what John wrote in his gospel. So I want to compare the gospel with the epistle. So the end of John chapter 20, verse 31, look what he says. But these are written, 
John starts the same way, right? He talks about written things. These are written. And then in this verse, you'll see he's going to talk about the Son of God. He's going to talk about eternal life. He's going to talk about believing. But notice the differences here. John twenty thirty one. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the gospel is written for unbelievers so that they might believe and believing have life. And the letter was written to those who already believed so that they would have assurance, so that they would know that they have life. The gospel tells you how to get life. The epistle tells you how to know you have life. Now, when we walk through the end of uh, this uh, chapter, uh, when we walk through this book at the end of chapter 3, we spend a fair amount of time talking about assurance. There are statements like this, like John, uh, 1 John 5, 13, all the way through the book. Do, do you remember some of them? Let's, let's look at them. So flip back to chapter 2, verse 3, quickly here. Chapter 2, verse 3, he says, We know, well, what do we know? We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Or chapter 3, verse 10, it says, uh, oh, I was in chapter 3, verse 10, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Chapter 3, verse 19, this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. And then chapter 4, verse 13, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. So this is John's goal. Assurance in the Bible is, is a thick, rich, meaty teaching. Assurance, when people have questions about their faith, it's not a place where we give Bible band-aids or, 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 or as, if, as if all you need, just slap a verse of the Bible on it and be done with it and you'll be okay. And the reason the Bible talks about assurance in a deep and rich and thick way is because people have different types of doubts. They come to the Bible with different sorts of questions, different sorts of agonies and, and struggles. So the Bible answers those things, in, those doubts in, in many different ways. What I want to do for the next few minutes is I want to give you some main uh, hooks, maybe, to hang your thoughts on when it comes to assurance. Here's some of the main summary sentences. I know we, we could explore, <coughs> explore all these um, for a long time, but I just want to show you the density of assurance in the Bible, just to give you a taste for it. John Piper wrote a similar list. I borrowed a little bit from him, and, uh, but think with me about these things. All right, number one here, God wants you to have full assurance. God wants you to have full assurance. Those of you who believe in the name of the Son of God, it is God's will, God's good pleasure that you have assurance. It was why this book was written. Uh, knowing that his, at times his people would be assailed with doubt, God incorporated this book and others into the scriptures so that we would know we have eternal life. I read about this week a woman who uh, adopted a little girl from Haiti. She and her husband uh, went to an orphanage in Haiti, adopted this girl and brought her home. And the first night they sat around the dinner table, the girl was just stunned. So this couple had a, a couple of teenage boys, and at dinner time they brought the food out and set it in, on the table. A big plate of pork chops, mashed potatoes, bread, vegetables, not green beans because she loved her child. So, and uh, so they set these, <laughs> set them on the table, and, 
and they, they pass out the food, and the teenage boys just decimated the food, just like wolfed it down. And the little girl just sat there stunned. And the reason, the table had on it more food than she had seen ever at one time in her life. She grew up in a very impoverished circumstances in this orphanage, and she was just stunned. She couldn't, she couldn't imagine that the boys would just wolf the food down and wouldn't save some of it for tomorrow. And then after dinner, the mother realized what, what had happened, so she, she took her, her, this new little girl to, uh, and, and gave her a tour of the kitchen. She opened up the refrigerator for her and said, look, look what's in here. We have milk and orange juice and butter and eggs and there's ketchup and mustard. And, and look, you, you can even see right here, it, this is the meat that I'm going to cook tomorrow for dinner. In the freezer, we have frozen orange juice in case that orange juice runs out. We can make more. And, and there's ice cream down in here too if you, if you want some ice cream. She went over and showed her the cupboard. Here's flour and sugar and two loaves of bread and a box of crackers and some potato chips and sh- all the things that were in the pantry, cans and cans of food. She said, in our house, we have, we have plenty of food. We have a lot of food. You, you don't need to be afraid of running out of food. And God comes to us, we who lived impoverished spiritual lives, and he says, oh, I have given you eternal life. I want you to be assured of it. I don't want you to be afraid. I want you to be confident and not full of doubts. God wants you to have assurance. Now, number two, our assurance is found in Jesus. Our assurance is found in Jesus. It's based on who he is and what he did. His death for our sins, his resurrection is the ground of our assurance. As John wrote in 2.2, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. It is only because of him that we're welcomed into God's family, only because of him that we're secure in his family. This is our main emphasis when it comes to assurance, what we say over and over and over again, Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. Some of you need to hear that over and over and over again and just be reminded. It's not for nothing that our adversary, the devil, is called the accuser of the brethren. His goal is to rob you of joy in following Jesus. And he brings to mind repeatedly all the ways or all, all the ways you have failed God and all the reasons he has for rejecting you eternally. He brings those to mind. Hebrews 10, 21 and 22 says, It's because of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus, over the house of God, that we have full assurance of faith. Do you remember the hymn that we sing? We don't sing it very often, but the hymn, um, My faith has found a resting place, not in device or creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. This this song summarizes the basics of our faith. Jesus died for us. He bore the penalty we owed. And the Bible calls us to turn to him and believe in him. And through him and in him, we have forgiveness and life. Tim Keller says that the death and resurrection of Jesus is sometimes functions, it sometimes functions in our mind, in our hearts, like a receipt at a store. You've had the experience, haven't you? You go to the store and you buy something, and as you're walking out, you see something else that you need, or you think, of, oh, I forgot, I forgot this. So you go back in the store, but you have, you have the bag in your hand of what you just bought. 
If you walk around the store, you have the receipt. Imagine a security guard comes up to you and says, Ma'am, sir, can I see what's in the bag? You open the bag and you say, Yes, here are the things I bought, and ta-da, here is the receipt. Trouble me not, O security guard. All of these things are paid for completely and wholly. They're mine. I bought them. Trouble me not, accuser of the brethren. My sins have been paid for. In full, in full. Our assurance is found in Jesus. All right, now we'll pick up the pace a little bit. Number three, assurance fades in isolation. Assurance fades in isolation. So our experience, our subjective experience of assurance can vary, and one of the reasons that it fades is in isolation. When we isolate ourselves from one another... Hebrews 3.13 says, Encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you are hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Interesting how this works out in the Bible. So, if you are a follower of Jesus, John says you will love the brothers and sisters, you will move toward them, and actually moving toward them and not isolating yourself, you receive from that fellowship with them assurance of your salvation. I need the nourishment for my soul that comes from singing with you on Sunday mornings and praying with you on Wednesday nights. If you isolate yourself, do not be surprised if the winds of doubt assail you and they blow a little harder. Now, number four, here's something else that causes our assurance to vary. Concealed sin diminishes our assurance. Concealed sin diminishes our assurance. In Psalm 32, uh, David is, is writing about the, the joy of having uh, uh, forgiven sin. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and whose spirit is no deceit. Then he talks about what it was like when he kept his sin a secret. When I kept silent, he says, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Our assurance is based on the work of Jesus, but Jesus changes us. Based on what we learned from 1 John, what does the work of Jesus do in us? It moves us. We start to love one another and, and, and we remain committed to this truth that Jesus is the Son of God. We take his commands seriously. Those are some of the ways that, that change us. The gospel changes us. But if you're reveling in concealed sin, you shouldn't have assurance. It's not a surprise that you have no assurance because concealed sin diminishes our assurance. Now, number five, assurance is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Assurance is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Assurance is grounded in the person and work of the Lord Jesus, but it is given to us by the Holy Spirit. It's God's intention before him that we have assurance of eternal life. It's a good gift and John writes, wrote this letter so that we would know that we have eternal life. Now, John turns from that in verse 13 to verses 14 and 15 where he talks about one of the ways that assurance manifests itself and he turns his attention to prayer. Look again at verse 14 where he says, This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, why does John turn his attention to prayer here? 
Why pick this as one topic uh, when it comes to assurance? Why doesn't he talk about um, serving? So I want you to be confident that you have eternal life, and this is the confidence we have when we, when we serve cake at a reception. Or mowing the lawn. Why doesn't he say that when we mow the church lawn? That is a manifestation of our assurance. Or uh, teaching a Sunday school class. Why doesn't he do that as an expression of our assurance? Why prayer? I think he does it because uh, he knows how unnatural prayer is for us. You can serve and still have doubts. You can mow the lawn and still have doubts. You can teach a Sunday school and still have doubts. It's really hard to pray and still have doubts. And and prayer is so unnatural. We're doing people. We're active people. It's unnatural for us to wait and to ask and to rely on someone else like this. If there's any way in which your assurance that you are in God's family manifests itself, it's going to be in the fact that you are a praying person. I read in 1952, there was a doctoral student at Princeton University. He was talking to a visiting professor, and he said to the professor, I don't know what to write about for my dissertation. Is there anything yet that has been unexplored? Anything out there for original research? Of course, this is 1952. <laughs> There's a lot. Uh, uh, he said, I don't know what to write about. And the visiting professor, whose name was Albert Einstein, said, find out about prayer. Someone has to figure out about prayer. I understand his questions. So the NIV uses this term here, approaching God, verse 14. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. You could also translate that uh, before God or being in God's presence. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. That's the same Greek phrase, with God, approaching God, being in God's presence. Prayer is a family affair. We have a good father whose pleasure it is to hear and answer us. Sometimes people think about prayer like playing the slots. I don't have a lot of experience playing the slots, but, but you, you, take, you, take, you, you put the words in the slot, right? And you, amen, and then you hope against hope that the right numbers come up, right? Oh God, I want you to do this, right? And hope that maybe by some mystery the numbers will come up right. But that's, that's not how a family works, not a family conversation. Some people, we, we stumble over the phrase in verse 14, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Well, if what I'm praying about is God's will, then why should I pray about it in the first place? But again, prayer is a family, family conversation. You talk to your family about your heart concerns regardless of their ability to intervene, right? Don't you talk to them about what troubles you? You want to unburden yourself to your family uh, regardless of whether or not they can actually do anything about it. Actually, if you've read most marriage books, they will tell you if you're a husband, you shouldn't try to solve your wife's problems. She'll unburden herself to you. And if you look at her after she has shared and you say to her, well, honey, just let me tell you what you need to do. Okay, at that point in time, you're a fool. You have messed up. All right? We unburden ourselves. Prayer is not like a slot machine. It's not like reciting an order at a drive-thru. It's, it's family business. Now, the word confidence 
in verse 14 appears four times in 1 John. Twice it shows up in context of having confidence when Jesus comes back. Uh, uh, 1 John 4, 17 says, This is how love is made complete in us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. So twice it's used that way. Twice it's used about prayer. Back in chapter 3, verse 21, it says, Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. Now think about this here. In chapter 3, we have confidence to pray because we are walking in obedience. In chapter 5, we have confidence to pray because we are assured of our eternal life and we're praying according to his will. Now think about how John is describing prayer here. Prayer is what happens at the connection between your heart concerns, what's weighing you down, the things that are burdening you, and the God who is your Father. Take both into account. How do these two things connect? How do my concerns, my worries, my fears, my temptations, my opportunities, my challenges here, and the God who is our Father, how do they connect? John's point when he says praying according to God's will is that you should not ask God to do what he is disinclined to do by virtue of his character. Don't ask him to do what you know he won't do because that's not who he is. I have an illustration. A child knows this, what I'm talking about. So my dad likes to talk about how children get candy at grandma and grandpa's house. Okay? So when you're at grandma and grandpa's house and you're a child, how do you get candy? The candy is there, of course, because it's grandma and grandpa's house. But how do you get candy? Uh, you ask grandpa. That's how you get candy. Okay? Don't ask mom or dad. Don't ask mom or dad. If you ask mom and dad for candy at grandma and grandpa's house, mom and dad will say, no, you've been mooching off your grandparents for too long. You shouldn't be eating their candy. No. They say no. If you ask grandma, you'll get a better answer, not the perfect answer, because grandma will say, yes, you can have candy, but not until after dinner. It's almost dinner time. It'll ruin your appetite. You can have some after dinner. But... If you ask grandpa for candy, grandpa will say, absolutely, and bring me a piece too, right? That's what grandpa says. So John says here, pray, pray according to God's will. You have a need, you have a concern, you have a worry, you have a challenge, you have an obstacle, and you have a good father in heaven. Don't ask him to do what he is not inclined to do. Pray according to his will. I think Jesus is hinting at this here in Matthew chapter 7. Uh, he has an eye on this family connection. Matthew chapter 7, look at verse 9. It says, Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to you who ask him? I'm fairly certain that at times when I pray, I ask for stones and snakes. I don't want God to give me stones and snakes, but sometimes I'm foolish, and that's what I ask for. God's a good father. He gives us bread. He gives us fish. So how do we know then what God's will is? 
So I'm in the family through Jesus. I have the right of access. I can pray and I have a lot of burdens. How do I pray? How do I know what God's will is? Well, the answer, of course, is, is the scriptures. The Bible is your most important resource for prayer. Um, let, I'll tell you how this works in my life, how I do this. So um, I think I pray most effectively when I have the Bible open. And my go-to book often is the book of Ephesians. So I opened my Bible to the book of Ephesians, for example, and I wrote down some verses from Ephesians 4, and I start reading it. And it says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. So I pray, God, today, please help me to live a life worthy of the calling that you've given me. Verse 2, Help me to be humble and gentle, patient. Help me to, to bear with one another in love. That's when I usually start thinking about people who get on my nerves, right? They're the ones I'm supposed to bear with, right? It's easy to love people that don't get on your nerves. It takes no effort to love them. So now I'm praying for us both. Father, I help us to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That's God's will for people who annoy me and my will for people who get on my nerves when I think about them. I make it to the end of Ephesians chapter 4. It takes a while sometimes. And I pray for people who I know are struggling with bitterness. I hear stories. You've been hurt. Someone's taken advantage of you. Someone embarrassed you. Someone defrauded you. So I pray for you that, that you by the Spirit will get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger. For those of you who like to fight, I pray that God will keep you from brawling. This is how the elders pray. We pray for the members of our congregation, a portion of our meetings and our meetings. Tuesday night we'll meet. We'll pray for a portion of the congregation. Not every elder knows every person in the church uh, intimately, but we know what God's will is for you, and so we can pray for you. What's God's will concerning people who are sick? I don't, I don't know what God's going to do in specific situations, whether or not God wants to heal them. But I know that James 1 says that you should consider it joy whenever you face trials of many kind. And I can pray for you for that because you know that the testing of your perseverance brings about faith. And 2 Corinthians 1 tells me that God sends troubles into our lives so that we will learn to rely not on ourselves but on Him. So I have two things I can pray for every sick person that I know for sure are as God's will, that they will count it joy when they experience trials and tribulations and that they will learn not to rely on themselves in the midst of their illness. On my knees, my assurance is made manifest. You pray this way because you have access. You have access to, God's, to God because you're part of God's family. Now, in verses 16 and 17, Paul turns his attention to a specific type of praying, a specific request. Look at verse 16. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. Now, if the passage ended right there, this would be excellent and a beautiful and a wonderful reminder of our calling to pray for one another. When you... Uh, see a fellow believer engaged in some sort of sin, it's got to be a sin that you can see because he mentions that. Not an attitude, not an internal thing that's hidden, but something that's visible. Pray for them. The New Testament gives us lots of instructions about what to do when we see brothers and sisters committing sin. One of them is to pray and God will answer you. Um, 
That's the main point of this passage. From a position of assurance, we have confidence to pray. We have confidence to pray even and especially for a brother or sister who's engaged in sin. That's the main point. Don't get distracted from that because we're about to look at the rest of the passage and this will distract you. So um, let's keep going. Uh, The middle of verse 16. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is a sin that does not lead to death. Now, what's John talking about here? Um, At its most basic here, John envisions that we would see a brother or sister committing a sin that does not lead to death, and we would recognize that that sin doesn't lead to death, and that we should pray for them. But someone, he also envisions this is a possibility, and he doesn't say who it is, someone we could see commit a sin that leads to death, and it's possible to recognize it that the sin that leads to death, and he does not command us to pray for them. He, he, it's funny. He doesn't say, don't bother, right? He doesn't say that. But he doesn't, he doesn't seem to express much enthusiasm about it. So what does it mean what, what is the sin that leads to death? I have no doubt that John's readers knew what he was talking about. Uh, this is one of the most perplexing passages in all the New Testament. I listened to a sermon this week from Albert Moeller. He's the president of Southern Seminary, and he's doing a chapel series, a sermon series in chapel at the seminary, and his sermon series is called Hard Questions. And the first hard question that he addressed is, what is the sin that leads to death? This is... a uh, this is a, a perplexing passage. And the irony is, is this whole paragraph is about assurance. And this is a paragraph that many people have picked up uh, as, as, as doubt, causing doubt, inciting doubt. I've committed this sin. I know I've committed this sin that leads to death. Well, let's talk about it here uh, under a few headings. First, what does he mean by life and death? I think by life and death, John has to be talking about eternal life and eternal spiritual death. That's how John always uses the word life in this book. I mention that because there are passages in the scripture where um, God disciplines his people through physical death. 1 Corinthians 11.30. I didn't have a space to write these verses out, but the reference is there. In 1 Corinthians 11.30, Paul says that people who abuse the Lord's Supper, some of them have fallen, uh, some of them are sick, and some of them have fallen asleep, as if God is disciplining them through physical death because of their um, sin. That's possible. That's not, I don't think, what John is referring to. When John uses the term life, he almost always is thinking about eternal life. Now, the Roman Catholic Church here has influenced a lot of the way that people approach this passage. And sometimes uh, we think about this passage, some people sometimes think about this passage in terms of mortal and venial sins. That this is another solution to the problem. In order for sin to be mortal, it has to be of a grave nature, and it has to be entered into fully, volitionally, willfully. And mortal sins are always serious sins. So over the years, some have suggested that the sin unto death here is murder or suicide. You heard that? If you commit suicide, you can't really be a Christian, you can't be in heaven. That is not true. 
Or some people think that uh, the sin here is adultery or abortion, or some have even suggested lying. If lying is a sin unto death, all y'all are in trouble. <laughs> now, now, there is some notion of this in the Old Testament. So in Numbers chapter 15, Moses distinguishes between sins that he says are committed inadvertently and there's a sacrifice to be made and he describes what those sacrifices are. And then he describes in Numbers 15 sins that are committed intentionally or in Hebrew it says sins of the high hand. Just by doing that you can picture what this means. Sins where you look to God and you say, I don't care what you say, this is what I'm doing. Sins of the high hand, intentional, volitional, in-your-face God sins. You know what Numbers 15 says about those sins? There is no sacrifice for those sins. Your only recourse when you commit sin like that is the mercy of God. That's why I think David says in Psalm 51, 16, he committed adultery with Bathsheba. He says, you do not delight in sacrifice. You don't want a sacrifice for this God, or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. David has committed a sin of the high hand in, in committing adultery with Bathsheba and, and murder of her husband Uriah. And he says, God, I know there's no sacrifice that I can make for this sin. I am completely dependent upon your mercy. Now the problem with thinking about 1 John 5 in terms of mortal or venial sins is that there's not enough in this passage to build that structure upon. It's just not enough to make uh, enough here to make those pronouncements. Plus, when you start ranking sins like that and putting them some of them in the unforgivable category, you begin chipping away at the atonement itself of the Lord Jesus. Remember what Horatio Spafford said? My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. That's what he said, and he's right. Now, this passage does make some people think about what the New Testament calls the unforgivable sin. This shows up in the Gospels. Uh, We're not going to take the time again to read the passage, but as Jesus describes it, the unforgivable sin is sometimes it's described to as the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. In short, it is ascribing to Satan the miracles that the Lord Jesus himself does. Now there's some debate about whether or not it's possible to commit the unforgivable sin without Jesus actually being present to do those miracles. Uh, What is important though is it's, It's even in the Gospels, it's strident rejection of the Lord Jesus. It may be related to this passage. I don't think it's central. I think, I hope it's not arrogant to say this, I don't think that this problem is that hard to solve. I think think it comes if we just read the rest of the the letter of 1 John. Remember the context. Um, John is writing to a group of Christians who have seen their church split in two, and some people have left, and they are denying key aspects of what it means to believe in and follow Jesus. And I think that's who John has in mind when he writes about the sin that leads to death. There will be times, John is writing to them, that you will see a member of your congregation, a brother or sister in Christ, and they'll be involved in some sort of sin. They're not denying the deity of Jesus. They showing a pattern of of obedience and loving the brothers and sisters, but they're just committing some sin. John says, pray for them and God will answer you. 
But then there are some people who have made a definitive turn. They are denying that Jesus is God's son. They have given up on obeying the commands. They don't care about loving one another. They're gone. That's who I think he's talking about. They've committed this sin. Uh, flip, flip back with me here to 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. Let's remember these people. 1 John 2, 19. Look what it says. It says, they, he's speaking about these people who have left, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. There were some who were in the church who at one point in time, uh, they were active, they were apparently believing participants, but now they have left definitively, willfully rejecting the apostles' teachings about the Lord Jesus. And their leaving demonstrates that though they appeared at one point in time to be brothers and sisters, they are not, and in fact, they never were. If you leave, if you make this decisive turn, you are not a follower of Jesus and you do not have eternal life. John says, pray for everyone else, but those who leave like this, He doesn't say not to pray for them, but he doesn't really seem to encourage it, does he? Now, what do you think about that? Part of the problem in looking at this passage like this is that you you start thinking, I start thinking about people I know, specific people, somebody in your family, a son, a brother, a sister, cousin, Someone who's walked away, and this passage does not offer much encouragement. Danny Aiken says that there are unanswered questions in this passage. He says the unanswered questions actually make it hard to understand how to apply this passage today. For example, he says, how do we know if someone has made that definitive break? How do we tell the difference between that definitive break and them just wandering a little bit? Like wandering sheep. How How do we know, how can we tell the difference? Um, that's one question. Second, he says, is he, is he certain that we shouldn't bother to pray for those dear people? Like, is he, is he forbidding it? Is, is, is he saying that, that there's never a time that we should pray for them because uh, God won't hear and won't answer? Huh. I keep praying. I keep praying for those but you should recognize they're in a perilous position. If you are considering this, if you're here this morning, you're a follower of Jesus, you're claiming to be a follower of Jesus, and you're considering this, you're thinking about taking this move, walking away, I don't believe that Jesus is God's son, you put yourself, friend, in a perilous position. It's a sin from which there is no hope. It's a sin that leads to death. I'll pray for you. I don't have much hope that God will answer the way I would pray. You, you can't walk away from who Jesus is and, and, and have hope of eternal life. This is a somber way to end this paragraph about assurance, isn't it? It's hard to focus on the main point. The main point is assurance. John's goal This book was written to those who believe in the name of Jesus so that we will know we have eternal life, all of it through Jesus himself. So we cling to him because 
He's the atoning sacrifice. He's our great high priest. He's our intercessor. He rescues us. He keeps us. I love this phrase he uses. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. You know, we pray. Why do we, why do we pray? We pray in Jesus' name. Why do we pray that way? When we pray in Jesus' name, it's not just for us a creed. It's not just liturgy. It's not just, oh, I hope this happens at the end of our prayer. It's our, it's our hope. It's always our hope. It's always the reason we come before God. It's always the reason we have hope in the midst of suffering and trials and questions because of Jesus' name, who he is. We fix our hope. We fix everything, our prayers, our hope, our life on him. In Jesus' name. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we confess to being uh, thrown a bit by this passage. It is indeed good news and we acknowledge this with delight that you want us to have assurance. You have given us this book of 1 John so that we might know that we have eternal life And yet, even as we read it, we think about the names, the faces of people that we fear have committed this sin, this rejecting sin that leads to death. Uh, Father, you are good and you are gracious. You are our Father. You're a a good Father. If, If we pray for bread, you don't give us stones. If we pray for fish, you don't give us snakes. I pray, Father, on the basis of this passage that you, by your Spirit, would give to us, those who believe in the name of the Son of God, assurance. And that we might use your word to slay doubt. Doubts come, darkness comes, questions come. Oh, by the Spirit we pray. Testify with our spirit that we're God's children, we who believe in the name of the Son of God. Keep us, we pray, in your love. Jude says that's what you do. Keep us from wandering, from turning decisively, making that terrible, terrible choice. Keep us, Lord, uh, according to your kindness and through your Son. Make us faithful in praying for one another. Oh, Lord, make our congregation a place of joyful assurance because of the great promises of the Lord Jesus. It's in his name that we pray these things together, saying, Amen.